you say responsible, that to me is, is synonymous with the preservation of tradition. Um, because I think as a consumer, I want to drink incredible mezcal that, that for a long time. And I also want to make sure that the communities that make it are, are taken care of and supported in a way that encourages them to continue to make this incredible spirit the way that it's always been made. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Decoding Cocktails podcast. I'm your host, Chris LeBeau. At the ripe age of 38, I left my former career behind and joined the hospitality industry. Since then, I've been on a rapid journey of learning, meeting all sorts of great people, and this, this podcast, is my chance to bring you along with me. Whether I'm interviewing somebody that works in the industry, another enthusiast, or occasionally stepping back to share what I'm working on or my thoughts. I'm so glad you're here. And so with that aside, let's get into today's episode. What's happening, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Decoding Cocktails podcast. I am Chris Lebeau, and I am very thankful that you're taking some of your valuable time to listen. I really appreciate it. Before we get into today's interview, which is a great one, um, today's interview is brought to you by my patrons. And uh, my patrons uh, are enjoying certain benefits like monthly cocktail classes. And if you're listening to this around the time it comes out, uh, this month, Nicole Gilbert from J. Rieger & Co., the distillery out of Kansas City, will be joining me on November 7th for a class on how to get ready for Thanksgiving. And so uh, whether you are visiting someone's house or having people over, um, uh, Preparing for a group event is not always easy, and so batching cocktails is what the primary theme is going to be. Uh, that way you're not stuck tending bar during the event, or you don't have one more thing to do between turkey and whatever else the hell, or if you don't like turkey, you know, you know fine, pair it with your meal. But uh, Nicole and I are going to get into the idea of how do we make better batched cocktails to simplify your day. And so if you are interested in something like that, patreon.com slash decoding cocktails for more information. My guest today is Emma Jansen. Emma is uh, a writer in the cocktail space. Um, she has had uh, most notably recently, which she left to kind of return to freelancing, but for seven years, she was the digital content editor, editor for Imbibe Magazine. And so in addition to that, she's had clients like Punch Magazine, Bon Appetit, and has also had stories appear in places like the New York Times, the Washington Post, Condé Nast, and more. Emma has also authored her own book and co-authored too. So she wrote on her own, Mezcal, the History, Craft, and Cocktails of the World's Most Artisanal Spirit, uh, which was nominated for a James Beard Award. And then, uh, just very recently, Emma took home the gold, so to speak, with a book she co-authored with Julia Momose of Bar Kumiko in Chicago called The Way of the Cocktail. So they won a James Beard Award this year for that book. So hat tip to Emma. Uh, helping showcase the diversity of her writing abilities, uh, Emma also very recently released a book called The Bartender's Manifesto with Toby Maloney of The Violet Hour out of Chicago. And uh, I think Emma very... Uh, 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 accurately described Toby as punk rock. And so with that, uh, to see 
the spectrum of voice that she is capable of communicating between Julia and Toby um, was uh, is is really quite remarkable and says a lot to her skills. Uh, two things that we did not get around to really digging as in-depth about as I would have liked, and that happens. Um, first, before I mention those, uh, a lot of uh, uh, agave varietals get mentioned during this. Um, links to all of those are in uh, the show notes. And two pieces she's written that I think are very useful. One is called Mindful Mezcal that she put out in Punch Magazine. And this is really gets to this idea that especially as the tequila and agave worlds and now Ricea, Bacanora really explode, there is reflexively, which almost always happens everywhere, a lot of money is coming in. And there's a lot of pressure to keep up with demand. And obviously, hey, as someone who likes the spirit, I'd like for it to be around. But as these international monies come in and the pressures to speed up production happen, we're seeing a lot of wholesaling of these ingredients. And we're also seeing a lot of the money leave the country and a lot of the practices get left behind. Um, Alcohol and spirits and cocktails are very, very deeply woven into many cultures. And so the even more broader concern is this idea of are we losing some of the culture in addition to are the traditional growers being left out and left behind. So it's a great piece. I highly recommend reading it, as well as Mezcal Heist, which came out in Eater. And this is really around this idea of why many growers are ditching the term Mezcal or other things. One of this is that the cost of being certified as someone that's visited uh, a Ricea distillery, these are very humble spaces. And so if somebody needs thousands and thousands of dollars to certify you, you probably don't just have that laying around. Uh, Second, uh, and this is even, this is almost the more outrageous part of it, is this idea that, you know, when done hopefully mostly with good intent, but as uh, boundaries were drawn for what is called mezcal, what happens is you have people who are making roughly the same product, but in a different part of Mexico, so they can't call it mezcal anymore, or their production process very slightly, and so they're not allowed to call it that. And so, um, as I say during the interview, to Emma's dear home state of Texas, this would be kind of like uh, the U.S. government saying, hey, we've been reviewing barbecue extensively, and now uh, Texas, the way you make barbecue doesn't really count anymore. Like that would, you know, talk about messing with Texas. That would be a, that would be a thing right there. So both of those pieces are very valuable. I highly recommend reading them. Uh, finally, uh, based on Emma's writing background, I asked her some questions about cultivating a writing practice. Uh, spoiler alert to my own disappointment. She said, I'm probably never going to be an overnight success. It's probably about putting in the reps. And But she did give some useful thoughts for how to begin cultivating your voice, uh, speaking passionately on the topic, um, and really kind of plotting a path for yourself. So, That's enough from me. Uh, If you're looking for Emma, one, links for her stuff is in the show notes, but uh, Emma Jansen, J-A-N-Z-E-N.com is where you can find her website, as well as she says she's pretty active on Twitter and Instagram. So with that, enjoy my interview with Emma Jansen. Emma, thanks so much for taking time to chat today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm I'm excited. 
to be here. So a place I always like to start that I'm curious about is, is there a time or a moment? Uh, because I, to back up, I, I kind of, I saw that you certainly did do uh, kind of writing, but around women and gender studies in college. But, you know, at some point, obviously, this whole writing about alcohol and the spirits world came along. So is there a moment you really fell in love with or decided to commit to this industry that you remember? Mm, yeah. Um, I, my first job out of school um, was working at the local newspaper in Austin, Texas. And um, I was a multimedia producer at the time coming out of film school of all things and uh, doing um, video editing and um, doing kind of news management on the websites um, for both entertainment and news. And um, my boyfriend at the time, now husband, um, and I were kind of looking for a hobby um, of sorts. And so uh, we found um, this guy in Austin who was doing these cocktail classes. And uh, his name is David Allen, and he's known as the Tipsy Texan. Um, and uh, Funny enough, we we applied uh, to be his interns for the class because I don't think we could afford to take the class at the time. Um, but uh, I knew we could intern, and and we did like a handful of funny, um, like how to make a cocktail videos with him, and you know stuff like that. But um, that class was the first time that I went from you know just kind of casually drinking in bars and really enjoying it to um, having like my mind opened to how how cocktails and spirits are part of a larger culture right like they they're this ecosystem of their own and uh with a great history and so many good stories to tell um and so i think that was that was definitely one of the first uh gateways into this world um and it's funny because I was just talking to David about this at Tales a couple of weeks ago. Um, we were both kind of remembering, like, what was the first drink that you realized, um, you know, was a cocktail, right? Like not a whiskey and Coke, which I drank a lot of in college. Um, what was a cocktail? And, and I remember it so specifically, it was uh, David Wondrich's uh, cocktail column in, um, oh, it was at Esquire? I think, right? It was Esquire. Um, and he wrote about the dark and stormy. And I thought, oh, that's fascinating. And so I just started to kind of look around in Austin and, and no one was writing um, about cocktails uh, at the time, not really, um, other than David, um, who was kind of doing it in a blog fashion. And since I worked at the newspaper, um, I thought, well, let's give this a go. And, and I started pitching stories and wrote a couple. Um, the first one that I had published in print was about Mescal. Um, ironically, back in 2010. And um, from there, it just kind of snowballed. Like uh, the cocktail culture was really blossoming in Austin. And um, so the editors ended up giving me that the whole drinks beat um, at the paper. So I ran the Liquid Austin blog for several years and um, wrote about beer, wine, cocktails, the whole shebang. But really cocktail uh, culture was, was where most of my interest was at and still is, I guess. With, um, you know, with your vantage point, one, having been in on the journalism side of things for a while, but also your time in Texas, you know, regionally was Mezcal really rising um, more geographically? I mean, you know, I, I imagine New York and other big cities caught on pretty quick, too, but 
did it rise quickly in Texas just based on geography? Yeah, I think definitely. Um, especially, you know, being in Austin, there's already this kind of love for um, tequila, uh, love for margaritas, especially, um, you know, essentially the national cocktail of Texas um, and I, national because um, Texas, you know, it, it is its own uh, specific place. Um, that was a that was a misspeak, but also not a misspeak. I'm from Texas. So uh, there you have it. Um, but yeah, I think, I think, um, I think Texans were predispositioned to enjoy agave spirits. And so, um, it was definitely a big market, especially for brands that were just launching in the States. Um, you know, a lot of brands, uh, would pick Texas to launch their first, um, Texas, California and Chicago and New York. So I think while New York, I think had, um, had a head start on, Mezcal and using it in cocktails, um, thanks to places like Maya Well and what Phil Ward was doing, but um, Austin was very quick on their heels. Got it. Got it. Uh, you know, so while I think, you know, it's hard to escape Mezcal's gravity these days, there are still the occasional person that if, you know, uh, will ask me in a class uh, or just in general, like if someone had to describe the difference, and I know that it's complex, but for, 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 for someone out there listening who might be thinking, what's the difference again between tequila and mezcal? Could you try to give us a high level definition? I know as we, we dig yeah. in, it gets real complicated, but uh, yeah. 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 It's definitely, there are a lot of nuances and a lot of tiny differences. Um, the way that I like to explain it to people these days that I think makes the most sense and that is the easiest to grasp is just, is comparing agave spirits to wine. So think about wine, right? You have this beverage made out of grapes. Uh, with agave spirits, you have this beverage made out of agave. Um, and agave spirits are made all over Mexico. Um, and some of them have regional uh, distinctions, right? Um, which have turned into formal um, government established denominations of origin. So tequila is the regional style of agave spirit that was being made in Jalisco around tequila um, got its formal denomination of origin in the 1970s. Um, prior to, or and at the same time, meanwhile, all of these other agave spirits in Mexico were colloquially known as vino de mezcal. So they were kind of known as mezcal wine. Um, so, you know, fast forward to today, um, mezcal has also been given its own denomination of origin, um, being made in a certain number of states um, from various different species of agave. Tequila is made from one very specific species of agave. Um, there are also different um, uh, tools and techniques that you can use to make mezcal versus tequila, um, etc. But essentially, it is, you know, it's kind of like, well, this is wine. Um, you know, this is a Chardonnay and this is a, um, you know, a, a Burgundy or whatever. Um, this is a tequila. This is a Raicia. This is a Bacanora. They're all agave spirits, but they're distinct to different areas. It was, it was, it was perfect. And I certainly love talking to people about why it is the most wine-like because of the terroir, because of how long, you know, whether it's you know, six years, seven years, eight years, 30 years, you know, for some of these plants to mature, you know, yeah. the terroir, the, the, the climate's just incredible in that regard. Um, you know, I was thinking about, um, 
so with the wine analogy, so, hey, you're uh, trying wine for the first time, maybe the biggest, boldest, driest red isn't for you. You know, there are a number of people out there that I know that are big fans of tequila who, when they have tried mezcal, that they have been like, oh, it's just too smoky. And I know I've seen you write about, you know, this before that obviously that smoke is not, doesn't have to be a universal element or in some it's a varying degree. Uh, are there brand styles for someone that's looking to tiptoe into the water or who went in and didn't like what they found? Are there things you'd recommend somebody looks for to kind of make drinking mezcal easier? And part of that could obviously be putting it in a cocktail too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the main thing to keep in mind and um, is that there is such a great diversity of flavor within this category that just because you try one and you don't like it doesn't mean that you're going to hate it all. Um, you know, I, I feel like there are other spirits categories that, you know, have characteristics that are present from bottle to bottle, right? Think about whiskey. It's all made from grain. It's all aged in uh, barrels, right? So you're, you're always going to have that oaky note, that vanilla note, that kind of grainy note. And if you don't like those flavors, you might not find a whiskey that you like. Right. But with mezcal, you know, there's so many different species um, and some of agave, and there's so many different places in Mexico where these spirits are made. And there's so many different traditions that when you put all of those factors together, you have this insane amount of diversity of flavor within the category because every one of those elements is going to influence the flavor of that spirit. So I think um, really like there, I think there are definitely some nerds, um, and I say that in a nice way, um, who are really enjoying like trying to categorize in that way, right? Saying things like, well, I know Tepetstate has um, this very verdant, very green bell pepper kind of cinnamony flavor. And that's definitely something that I think I'm starting to find as well in that variety. Whereas, um, you know, like, um, a Madre Quiche or another Karwinski agave, they're going to have, um, you know, kind of more like darker earthy qualities. Um, but really, unfortunately, I think right now we're still in a place where you kind of just have to try, like you just, you know, try as much as you can and get a sense for what it is that you do like. And, and luckily bar, there are bars um, all over the country now that specialize in agave spirits with really knowledgeable bartenders. And if you go in and say, hey, like I normally drink, I don't know, uh, Chenin Blanc, um, what kind of agave might I like? And then they can say, well, you know, Salmiana has this really beautiful high pitched floral note or, um, you know, well, actually Cupriata, I think are the ones that have more floral notes. But anyway, you get the idea. Um, let the, let the bartender help be your guide, but also just don't like rule out the whole category just because you had one that, that maybe you didn't like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think you're right. At some point, just uh, rather than going to the store uh, to the store and popping for the bottle, you know, putting yourself in the yeah. hands of a bartender for a flight or, or, you know, the great liquor stores also even have tasting bars too, where you can like taste yeah. something before you purchase it. So um, totally. yeah, no. Okay. That's... <laughs> They're the you know the price points really good mezcal are a lot higher than um, say uh, a really good bottle of 
um, whiskey or rum in, in a lot of cases because it's so labor intensive and time intensive to make. So I think, yeah, you're spot on, like doing a flight. Uh, like, don't just go out and buy a $120 bottle of mezcal because you might not like it and then you're stuck with it. Um, but yeah, doing a flight is, is a very uh, cost-effective way of figuring out what you like. Great. Yeah, no, that makes sense. So you had recently written, and I thought it was great, you know, following along with your uh, your book that you put out on Mezcal, you recently put out a piece and you've written quite a bit about the fight for who owns Mezcal and how to responsibly consume it. And I know I'm biting off a lot right here, but, you know, and we will link, I'll link to the article you put out. I think it was on Punch. I read it a couple of months ago. But are there some basic rules or watch outs you might offer someone? Sometimes I think it's more like, uh, you know, talking about something, it's like, uh, you know, quick side note in your Japanese cocktail book, I think it was Julia who said, it's almost as easier to talk about what a Japanese cocktail is not sometimes. Mm -hmm. So are there general rules or things that people could watch out for in terms of what is going to be not made well, or not have someone's best interest at heart? How should the lay consumer think about tackling this category that way? Yeah. Um, you know, I think, I think to start that conversation, you do like a little bit of context is helpful, right? So like if you go back and look again at the history of mezcal and how it's the spirit that's made in communities all over Mexico, right? It's part of the fabric of their culture historically, right? It's, it was consumed socially. It was consumed medicinally. Um, it was consumed for births and marriages and funerals, um, now that the category has commercialized in kind of a very large way, right? It's grown, it's evolved into this big international thing. Um, that does come with all sorts of issues that are changing the way that it's being made in Mexico. So right now, you know, what, what we're seeing is these two roads that are diverging off of that history. Um, and one of which is traditional producers who aren't really keen to change the way that they've always done things. And then you have the larger producers, oftentimes, um, you know, uh, owned by international people um, who kind of just who want to go in and, and like make a bunch of mezcal quickly just to satisfy demand and make a bunch of money. Right. And so um, within this dynamic, there are environmental concerns, right? There are economic inequalities that are happening. Are producers getting paid well? You know, some of the things that you've already, already mentioned. So I guess what I'm saying is like, when you say responsible, that to me is, is synonymous with the preservation of tradition. Um, because I think as a consumer, I want to drink incredible mezcal that, that for a long time. And I also want to make sure that the communities that make it are, are taken care of and supported in a way that encourages them to continue to make this incredible spirit the way that it's always been made. Um, so I think the long story short is you do kind of, as a consumer, you have to do some research into the brands that are available to you in order to figure out whether or not they're doing things in a way that you want to support or not, right? So like that 
it's it's almost like anything else in the world right now, right? This this idea of conscious consumerism. So it's you know it's the fast fashion, right? It's it's everything down to like spice companies, right? There's always going to be the like the really big box McCormick, but then but now you have companies like Burlap and Barrel who are doing you know sourcing single origin spices and working with the farmers and making sure that they're paid well and and that's kind of a win win for everybody. So it sounds it, it sounds almost too basic, right? Just do the research. And I hate it in panels when uh, the expert says, well, just do your research. Cause it's like, well, how, how do I do that? Um, so I think like there are a couple of basic takeaways. Um, uh, transparency is one of them. Look at the label itself. Does it list the producer? Does it list where it was made? Does it list how it was made? Um, does it have a batch number on it, right? Is this from a 200? bottle batch or or is there no batch number on there because they're making a hundred thousand liters a year right um that can be an indicator of um whether it's being done traditionally or not um look at social media feeds and websites right are you being fed like lifestyle content from this brand um or is the brand is it are they showing you who makes it are they showing you where it's being made? Are they telling you the story that's that's behind this product? Um, I think in most cases, those are gonna be brands that you can feel pretty good about supporting. At least that is my experience right now. Who knows how that'll change, but. the uh, I think the lifestyle thing is so spot on. Uh, I, was, I was handed a bottle of Mezcal, I don't know, a year ago or something like that. And I even forget the name, but yeah, it's just, it's so the website, the bottling, all the social is all so overdone that, yeah, mm -hmm. it, 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 um, and I guess that's something that, you know, maybe the, also the consumer has to make that leap of, you know, what do, do many of the, uh, distilling operations look like that you're often taking this stuff from. And if this stuff is, you know, not that there aren't some larger operations that are still doing a good respectful job, but some of these things are so built around, you know, selling, uh, you know, the, the sexiness of Mezcal that they're right. not really about the, the brand origin story. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I think it's, it's, there's so much power in, in marketing. Um, it, it's a communication of that brand's values, right. And do they value like beautiful people sipping on a beach or do they value telling the story of your producer? And like you said, there are there are larger companies that are doing things in a traditional way, in a way that's creating really good mezcal. Um, and those brands, again, I think that they, they communicate their priorities, right? They'll mm -hmm. tell you about that. Um, and they'll have transparency and they'll have um, education going on, I think. I do think it was in your mezcal book and I, uh, I hadn't gotten around to double checking this, but... Uh, I remember reading and really thinking about an analogy for coffee regarding the whole single origin thing that's in push right now, as opposed to the ensemble, you know, for those who don't know the word, like the, the, the mixture, a blend and this idea that, you know, how was coffee grown historically? How was agave grown historically? And rather than these mass cultivated fields, it was more someone going out to a field and saying, hey, what's what's available right now? What's ripe and ready for harvest? Will you talk to us about why people should um, 
why it's maybe okay to let go of that term single origin, at least in instances, and embrace this ensemble here. Mm, yeah. I mean, you're right that historically, you know, mezcal was made um, as a field blend, right? The mezcalero would go out on his land and see what was ripe. And, and sometimes it would be many different varieties. Um, whatever was close by and ready to, you know, ready to go, let's do it. Um, and then um, when Ron Cooper started um, bringing in Del Maguey mezcal um, back in the late 90s, um, he was kind of the one who said, oh, okay, you know, I noticed in tequila that they put 100% blue Weber agave on their labels, right? And now in tequila, that's because um, the blue Weber is the only variety that you can make tequila out of. But in mezcal, he just thought that was really interesting is to highlight the variety, right? Like, let's put an emphasis on that. Um, and so a couple of years later, when he put out the first Tobala, he said, okay, this is 100% Tobala. And that kind of like set this course for the single varietal thing to happen. And um, I think, I personally think there are benefits to both, right? I think, um, I think the single varietal thing is really cool because um, kind of like we were talking about earlier, if, you know, you, you focus on one and drink, um, you know, drink a, a cupriata from four different brands, um, you're going to kind of get to know that a little bit. Um, but that can also put you know, an undue strain on that single varietal. If everyone decides that they like cuprieta, um, then, you know, farmers are going to plant more of that and they're going to get rid of the other agaves. And then there's going to be no more biodiversity left. And that's when you, those monocultures is when, you know, you're, you're becoming susceptible to disease and, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera. There's a whole host of problems that can come from that. Um, ensembles are um, cool because they do put less demand on that one single varietal. Um, they also, uh, no two will ever be exactly the same because when you're using multiple different varieties, you're creating this entirely new beast that is super interesting to taste. Um, I think my approach is definitely like have a diverse liquid diet, right? Like don't only drink single varietals. Don't only drink ensembles, like spread out the love. Um, and then that way, uh, I don't know, maybe in theory, um, there will be less, of a demand on, on one or the other. I think that, uh, have a diverse liquid diet needs to be some kind of tagline that I'm going to need to pick <laughs> up. That's, that's, that's great. That's great. So recently, uh, you know, we have this exploding landscape of cocktail books and, uh, despite that you've, you've now partnered with a uh, bartender, Toby Maloney, uh, for, uh, his newest book, uh, The Bartender's Manifesto, that just came out. So, you know, part of the the thing is we all we all have a story to tell, and there's you know, journalism is always discovering new stories in there. But what is it that drew you in to want to help write yet another cocktail book? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, um, uh, Toby um, was one of the co-founders of the Violet Hour in Chicago, and um, he's had this book in him for a long time. I think it took him a long time to get it, um, to kind of get it to the point where it was picked up by a publisher. Um, I think his original goal was to just kind of share the way that, um, that they make drinks at the Violet Hour, right? Like what is their training program? Um, and so I met with him, um, summer of 2019, I think. And, um, 
you know, I was like, I asked him the same question. I was like, you know, there are so many books out there um, about how to make cocktails and, and, and what is it that, you know, like, I don't have an interest in just making another one, you know, unless it has something to say. Um, and oh my goodness, does Toby have things to say? <laughs> he has so many things, wonderful things to say. And um, he, uh, with this book, um, for me, part of what drew me into it was the idea that different bar programs do have different approaches to creating cocktails. And how could I get, like, how could I crawl into the skin of the Violet Hour and like bring its soul to the page? right? That's kind of how it started for me anyway. That was what attracted me to it. Um, Toby is also just such a character uh, and with so much to teach that I knew that I would learn a ton of things just by working with him um, and bringing, like helping bring his stories to the world. Um, you know, the legacy of the Violet Hour is, is exceptional. Like um, prior to pandemic, uh, most of their staff had been there for, you know, five, seven, 10 years, um, and uh, have gone off to open uh, incredible bars elsewhere. Um, so I knew there was something to it, right? Um, and I think looking again at the whole spectrum of cocktail books that were on the market already, um, a lot of them were kind of are kind of dry. Um, a lot of them are very technical. They're very like, this is how you do this, you know, step one, step two. Um, and and they all like, I don't know, I just didn't feel like, I felt like there was more to say there and I just didn't know what it was at the time. Um, and now I know that like the way we've done it by looking at cocktails through these unique lenses of, um, you know, texture, temperature, aroma, um, kind of reframes the way that, that you think about cocktails, which also can reframe the way that you learn how to make them. Um, the other thing that really drew me to this one as being different from others is it's all about, it's also about, experiencing cocktails and learning how to invent drinks that tell a good story, right? The ones that stick with you. They're not just going to taste good. They have meaning. Um, there's such a, a line in the book that I think about all the time and it's, and it's, you know, a, a cocktail without a backstory um, and one that doesn't spark curiosity or uh, feelings of nostalgia or comfort or or just spark the imagination in general might as well be a beer and a shot. Um, so I think all of those things together kind of uh, make this um, kind of unique in that whole like how to make a cocktail space. I, that was uh, a lot, sorry. <laughs> I, I, I think it's great and accurate because one, yeah, and I I appreciated at the start of the book that Toby said, Hey, this ne isn't necessarily a beginner's cocktail book. If you mm -hmm. don't, if you, ha if you haven't read these books and he named them, uh, yeah. then go read them and then come back here. But I, I will say one of the bartenders he did mention, uh, Jeffrey Morgenthaler, I feel like mm -hmm. Jeff tends to write with a little, um, he's a little more, uh, brash and flippant with his words. Uh, Toby's, mm -hmm. uh, this book is very colorful, everybody. Uh, but yeah, I, I appreciated that it was, you know, you, you could feel his soul on the page. So good job. Uh, nice work. <laughs> um, because yeah, I also remember him talking about like, I think it was, uh, there's a line in there about him hearing Joaquin Simo say like, uh, uh, oh yeah, like this, this mezcal reminds me of cotton candy, but I was 
eating it near a golf cart. And so there was gasoline mm -hmm. fumes at the same time. And he's like, listen, when you hear that, you are right there right yeah. away. And so, and he, he, he's right for that. And I think that is a muscle that someone at my level, I have not flexed as much yet is this idea of, no, what is the first thing you're thinking? It doesn't have to be right. It's personal. Like it, this reminds me of summer camp next to the campfire. That's the answer. That's fine. So yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, and, and, and it is a good point because there, there are room, there's room for all of the books, right? Like there, are, there's, there's plenty of room for like the one-on-ones and the manuals and the ones that are more technical and are more serious. Um, but I think, yeah, with this one, it definitely was the idea was, okay, what is 2.0? Um, you know, you, you've learned how to pour into a jigger. Uh, now, how do you, how do you bring a drink to life from the spark of an idea? Um, and I think that a lot of people in the cocktail um, community, you know, bartenders um, starting at new bars, you know, people making drinks at home, um, everyone can benefit uh, from this. I think, I think there are people out there who, who are capable of following a recipe now, right? And they want to go that next step, especially after pandemic and uh, like coming out of pandemic. Um, and, you know, we wrote almost this whole thing in 2020. So, um, you know, I think that really helped um, kind of center it in that time and space as well, right? Like this is something that's gonna add, give added value to people who already know how to follow a recipe at home. They wanna do something more creative, something that's more expressive of themselves, right? How do you put yourself into a cocktail? Like that stuff is super cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I feel like, you know, all at one time, I remember him saying uh, when he was, when I'm choosing a spirit, I consider flavor to be the least important thing about cocktail making. Yeah. And, and I'll tell you what, I mean, so it, it, it did kind of resonate in a way because I kind of talked to people like, yeah, proofing is really what's important. Like, how do you think about, it? is this barrel aged or not? As opposed to, you know, is this whiskey or is this rum? Like you can kind of play a little bit once you kind of know basic things like proofing and on the other end of things. Um, I appreciated him and I, you know, need more time to work with this, but he said, uh, uh, texture is the single most important element of a cocktail. And, uh, yeah. So I think it certainly invites people deeper into the waters. Um, mm. yeah. And, and the, the final thing I'd add based on that is I, I'm often very interested in when I'm tasting a cocktail, how do you begin to discern what's off about it? And I liked mm -hmm. that, um, you know, assuming that there is something off, I should say, but I like that he would say something in terms of like a, a signpost for people, drinks that are too sweet are often just lacking dilution or acid. And so, you know, oh, it's too sweet, give it a hit of lemon or, you know, give it a little extra stir or shake. And that could kind of help. So I think some of those signposts are very accurate. Yeah. Yeah, definitely helpful. And, and, you know, flavor is, is one of the least important things that you do need to be thinking about as a cocktail person. And that's such a revelation because if you have good ingredients, right, like the distiller, um, or the winemaker or the syrup, you know, well, the, whatever the, the people who are making the ingredients that you're working with have already done their job, right? As long as you're picking good quality stuff, you don't need to worry about that. What you need to worry about is how to put it all together in a way 
that is going to taste balanced and interesting and like texturally correct. I think that that is definitely a big kind of revelation that I had for sure learning from him. And so did I re I think I read somewhere that, uh, salt fat acid heat was kind of this, like uh, was, and will you, to whatever extent you recall, will you speak to how that served as a little bit of an inspiration for you guys? Yeah. Um, you know, early on in the process, we were definitely looking at what kind of tone do we want to strike here? What kind of approach are we going to take? How are we going to get this big thing on the actual page? And what is it going to look like? And what's it going to sound like? And um, salt, fat, acid, heat was um, definitely an inspiration. Um, and I think uh, for a lot of reasons, right? I think, first of all, I mean, Samin is just an absolute delight, right? And she just, her enthusiasm jumps off the page, right? Like there's not a single condescending bone in her body. And Toby is exactly the same way. Um, uh, when you deliver everything with enthusiasm, it's, it's, it's not going to fall flat with the reader. Um, we didn't want anyone to, to feel like they were being lectured to or talked down to. So that was a big thing. And also, um, you know, structuring it in the way that we did with each, um, with texture, temperature, aroma, um, and uh, balance, I think is the fourth, um, you know, those, those philosophies were already inherent in his training program. Um, but when I looked at salt fat acid, I was like, oh, you know, maybe instead of, um, you know, here's how we train bartenders on day one, day two, day three, day four, let's pull those philosophies out like that, like she did. Um, because that really kind of reorients the way that you're looking at these processes and these mechanics. Um, and so, yeah, I think, um, keeping her book on my desk almost the whole time and just having it there is like a little whisper in my ear for those reasons, um, I think was helpful. Yeah. I, uh, you know, while salt is increasingly on the bar and used in cocktails, you know, when I was reading her book for the first time six months ago, honestly, I, I'd, I'd followed her work, but it's the first time I sat down with it. You know, I did certainly think of like, okay, a fat, that could be a, a syrup, you know, we clearly mm -hmm. have acid, you know, in a cocktail, but I, I like that he's coming at it from a whole other angle and taking it at a, another level in terms of what is the outcome of this drink. And that was, I guess, another thing that I loved about the book too, was him saying, you know, whether I serve this up or on the rocks or whatever it is, he, he talked about, like, I'm envisioning the last sip this person's going to take of the drink. And yeah. if it's the daiquiri they're having, right, if they've come in after work and it's a hot day out, they're probably going to just, so let's shake the hell out of it. And because they're probably going to make quick work of this versus the drink you're going to nurse, you need it to stay cold while you're doing that. So yeah, I, I, yeah. I appreciated that. Begin with the end in mind. Uh, thank you, Stephen Covey, mm -hmm. uh, uh, right there. Yeah, I think that was, that was honestly one of the biggest takeaways that I, had from working with him on this book um, is this idea that, um, again, like making a cocktail is so much more than just saying, okay, well, shake it and strain it. You know, like that, that is not, that's not how you make a good cocktail. And I didn't know that before. Um, now I know that you have to, you have to hold all of these different things in your head all at the same time. So you have to imagine how the drink is going to be served, right? Is it going to be served up? 
or is it going to be served on the rocks? If it's on the rocks, what kind of rocks? Is it one big rock that's going to melt slowly? Is it multiple rocks? Is it crushed ice, um, which he refers to as the deep fryer of, of cocktails? Um, you, you know, you have to think about how it's going to be consumed, right? Like, is it, like you just said, uh, is someone, is it an up daiquiri that's going to be, um, you know, taken back pretty quickly, or are you going to sit there and nurse it? All of these little things, you, you have to tailor your approach to making it the drink in a way that's going to make sure that it is good all the way through from start to finish. Um, and, and I think that that has changed the way that I make cocktails at home exponentially. Um, and, um, definitely for when I'm serving, um, cocktails to people who are, you know, guests, um, and you should definitely interview him too. Like this, this is all like basically me telling you things that he taught me. So you should definitely talk to him as well. But, um, I think as a little teaser, um, this is, uh, that's definitely like the biggest thing. Um, and the most wonderful thing, like the most enriching thing that I think I, I learned during the process of, of writing it within. So as a transition, but also just needing to be said, yeah, I mean, having read both uh, The Way of the Cocktail by Julia Momose and, uh, and Toby's, uh, Toby's book as well, uh, you certainly did a great job of helping bring them to life. I mean, you know, you know, reading Julia's book next to Toby's book. I mean, both are clearly very skilled practitioners, but one is very, uh, delicate and, you know, yeah. and it, I think presents in a, a very thoughtful, patient way, if that's the right way to say it versus Toby is just like in your face, there's lots of F-bombs, like let's get after it. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, it's like, it was like, it was like, I don't know. It was like a, a, a workout video almost. I was like, okay, I'm feeling kind of hyped. Let's go. So, <laughs> Yeah. I mean, writing like, and what's funny is the books overlapped. So like in terms of the writing schedules. So there were days in 2020 where I was jumping from Julia's book, which again, like, like you said, it's elegant. It's beautiful. It's it, like, it, you know, it's a Michelin, it's a Michelin, right? Like they had a Michelin star um, and, and elegant and, oh, just lovely. And then, and Toby is just punk rock. Like it's just so punk rock. And then at the same time, I was uh, still the digital editor at Imbibe magazine. So I was writing an Imbibe's voice too. So there'd be th days where I was like, who, who am I? Like, where, like <laughs> I'm, I'm helping, like, uh, I'm channeling all of these different, um, souls and attitudes on, on these different pages. And it, and it was really kind of like, um, it was, uh, an adventure. Let's put it that way. It was, it was wild. You are Toby Momose Jansen. That's who you are. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's fun. It's, but it's a, it's a really good challenge, uh, to be a co-author and help, um, you know, help someone who is incredible at storytelling, um, help channel that onto the page. Um, I think that is, um, it's, it's an incredible, it's a, I've, I see it as a privilege, but it's also just such a good challenge for me in terms of getting better at writing and getting better at what I do. Um, and that's why I think I'm definitely going to continue to co-author. I've already got a new one on the books that is completely different than the last two. Um, it's just an absolute joy to like get into these people's heads and, you know, there's some psychology involved in it, right? Like I have to anticipate what they're going to say and how they're going to say it sometimes too. 
Um, and of course, each project also is a different level of collaboration. So, um, you know, and some of them were writing together in the same document, you know, um, that was me and Toby every day during the pandemic. We were, we were in these docs where he was writing these incredible things. And I was just kind of like putting them together in a way that made sense. And, you know, with Julia, she would tell me her stories out loud. We'd meet at the bar every week. And, and so with that one, it was more of like, me hearing it and getting it down and smoothing it out. And then she'd come back and look at it. And, um, and again, this, this new one is completely different. So um, it, it works all sorts of different muscles in all sorts of ways that I like never uh, could have anticipated. Well, that's, that, that's exciting. And uh, I would just tell people like the, the intro to the way of the cocktail is, is very beautiful. So I, I recommend you just read it just for the, just for the reading. I, I remember smiling as I was reading. I was like, this is great. Uh, oh, that's wonderful. So I have dabbled in and around the writing space for a while, taken a couple courses and just, you know, at times from moment to moment, kind of enjoy it, but have never really, uh, given myself to it fully. And so as I think about my own evolving business practice and voice, you know, I guess I'm curious, like in the cocktail or spirits writing space, you know, if you were starting today as a, a beginner, are there steps you'd take or avoid in order to build experience, credibility? How would you, how might you begin if you were starting right now? Yeah. Oh man, it's such a tough question. Um, Cause I, I don't know that I spend a ton of time, like looking back and thinking, Oh, should I have done that differently? Or should I have not, you know, I think for the most part, the way I've done it is just, I've, I've, I say yes to everything pretty much up until recently, which is um, a completely different story. Um, but say, I think, I think one thing that, that has worked for me, right. Cause I, I don't feel like an expert in this at all is that, um, is being reliable to the editors that I want to work with and every assignment that would come in, um, you know, I'm, I'm quick to respond over email, right. I'm not gonna leave anyone hanging. Um, I'm always game for, um, taking edits, right. I love the editing process. I am not precious about, I don't think I'm a good writer, to be honest. I, I it's the, it's my least favorite part of the, of the work. Um, I'm, I'm here for the polishing, for the editing stages it's to get that raw thing on the page and then work with someone else, ideally, um, to get it into, into this beautiful place. Right. So I, my ego, I guess is what I'm saying. Like maybe don't have an ego um, because the more you fight back against someone who's trying to help you make this piece better um, it, you know, it's not, it's going to be detrimental, could, could be detrimental to the work. It could come through in the work. Um, you know, I, I try to always hit deadlines, right? Like I think a lot of people, um, especially casual writers, I hear from a lot of editors like, oh, I've got, you know, this new writer, they're not really a writer, but they want to be a writer and, you know, and then they never hit the deadline. And it's like, well, I'm not going to work with you anymore. If you're not going to hit the deadlines, you're not going to be responsive. Um, and I think, you know, the other thing for me too is like, I never turn in first drafts ever. Like it just, that is not setting up the story to be its best version of itself. So I try to write, I, I let it sit for a couple of days. I'll come back, I'll polish. I probably edit my own work four or five times before I turn it into an editor. Cause it, that, that is setting up the best stage for them to really take it to that next level, as opposed to 
here's something that I have to say, and it's just raw and it's just maybe not as well organized as it could be. And now you have to help fix the whole thing. Does that make sense? It does. I think, um, you know, cause I think where, where my mind was going from there is, you know, in the field of writing a long form article or a book, um, one, there's all sorts of ways. I'm sure you could rush that and it could be sloppy, but it feels like in the world we have that is just ever spinning faster. We're mm -hmm. like, okay, now the reels have got to be eight seconds or whatever is going on out there. Yeah. So, you know, I guess I'm curious is like, are there ways you see journalism being done well in this shorter form? Obviously, I guess some people sometimes have taken to, you know, tweets in journalism or whatever, but like with pictures and video kind of ruling the day right now for some people. Sometimes I wonder if it can lead to people being a little too, because obviously you have a photography background, so photos, video can play mm -hmm. a huge component. But I guess, I guess I'm wondering if some people are ever just being too sloppy or if there are ways that you see it being done really well right now uh, mm -hmm. online. Oh man, that's a good question. And it is hard, you know, it is hard because I do, because I agree with you. I feel like there is this, this like invisible voice somewhere telling people you need to create more, right? Create more content, more content. And I think quality gets lost in that. So I feel like keeping, if you, if you can keep the storytelling at the heart of whatever you're doing, it should land right if you're just creating content to create content it i think i can tell you know like i feel like i can tell when people are just like and i and to be fair like i do it myself you know it's like okay well i've got this photo and not every photo that i'm going to post on instagram is going to have this incredible story behind it sometimes i just want to post something pretty and i don't have anything to say about it which is totally cool too but i think if if your goal is is storytelling is is keeping the idea of quality over quantity um, is going to really help. I think um, it's counterintuitive, right? To algorithms, it's counterintuitive to the speed of everything that's going on these days. But I think that's what makes something land with more impact and also um, have have a longer lifespan, right? Like, if think about the lifespan of what you want to put out into the world. Do you want it to be um, you know, a, a, a blip, right? A memory that someone scrolled through and just saw and they're like, okay, that's cool. I'm going to move on. Or do you want to like catch them and, and have them remember that moment? So like, I'm thinking specifically, um, a friend of mine sent me a post, um, from the humans of New York Instagram feed recently. And, um, you know, it's a story about this woman. Um, she was a preacher's wife and she left and, and they put 15 posts up to tell her story on Instagram. And the photos were, you know, they were just pictures of her. Like some photographer went out and took a bunch of photos of her. They weren't that much, but when you put them together, there, there's this long, beautiful story. And I would love to know how long it took them to put that together. Um, but the quality is just so good um, that that stuck in my head. You know, like I couldn't tell you half the things I saw on Instagram this morning as I was scrolling through it, but that stuck with me. And I think that's important too, because um, it's important to kind of stay true to 
your to the story that you want to tell, put the time that it takes to make it better instead of just posting more and more and more. Um, the example that I'm going to give you is a story that a personal essay that I wrote for a website called Good Beer Hunting earlier this year, um, also about mezcal. You know, it was really hard for me to write. It took like what felt like a million years because it was just, I haven't written anything personal in a really long time outside of like Instagram, you know, short captions. Um, but we're in the editing process of this story. And my editor says to me, you know what I would just love to see you lean into is, is this, and she sends me a link to an Instagram post that I posted in January. Um, and it was one of those Instagram posts where I, I just wanted to like say, like tell a little story about myself um, without really caring about how, you know, creating content or whatever. It was just something kind of personal. And so I got really prosy with it and I got a little wild um, with it and, and I didn't think it would go anywhere, but it stuck with her, you know? And so it was genuine to me. And if, if you're being genuine to yourself, that's gonna come through to the reader or the viewer or whatnot. And, and that's kind of what sticks with people. That's what makes something lasting. And that's, that's honestly all I'm, all I'm interested in doing these days and is making things that um, have substance and that, you know, that have, that, that are maybe longer, but even if they're short, um, what is the soul of that thing? And how can I, how can I explain it to someone else in a way that like is going to stick with them? Because there's just so much, right? And we can only handle so much input um, as consumers before our brains kind of like short circuit. Um, so that's, I don't know, I, that was a really long tangent, but that's just kind of like where my brain went with that. No, I think, um, uh, I mean, it's, uh, I, I think in an era where we're often putting on airs and showing off little pieces of ourselves, you know, uh, I, Side note, if you ever find yourself in St. Louis, there's a great bar down here called Breddens, and I posted about it just earlier today because they have this board where they just rotate what's written on there all the time. And it was from Halloween last year, and it said, don't know what to be this year for Halloween. Why don't you go as the person you pretend to be on Facebook? So, Ooh. <laughs> but, but, but I think to that point, you know, putting yourself really out there, um, is the kind of thing that really sticks with it. Because, you know, a, a question that came in when I mentioned that I was going to be talking to you is, and obviously this is part of what, you know, you've done with Julia and Toby, who compared to this person, maybe have had slightly longer arcs, but, you know, uh, she was interested in how do I make the transition from behind the bar to writing? And obviously they had the time and resources to approach you, but you know, ultimately they, it sounds like they were just, they're really trying to authentically or genuinely tell their story, but would mm -hmm. you have any tips for this bartender out there, uh, who's making a, 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 who wants to kind of make the jump to writing? How would you begin if you were her? Yeah. I mean, you know, the beautiful thing about that is that is what we were just talking about. It's like the silver lining of, of social media is that it is easier than ever to get your story out in the world. And, and especially with writing, um, you don't have to go to school for it, right? Like I'm terrible at grammar. Like I'm really bad. Um, 
you don't have to be good at grammar, right? Um, you, you just have to tell good stories, right? You have to tell something that's authentic to yourself. Um, and so I think, you know, especially as a bartender, right? Making a transition from behind the bar to writing, like you must have a million good stories to tell already. Um, if, if not about your own personal experience, which I do suggest like is, is a really good place to start. Um, just things you've like observed, right? Stories that you've heard other people tell. Um, you know, the, the, the cool thing is like, just start doing it. You don't have to ask permission from anyone to do it. And I think as an editor, you know, when I, when I look for new writers or when I did, you know, when I was editing stories and stuff, um, I would look to their social media feeds. And I know that editors at publications do that. And that's kind of how they look to find good writers, right? So it's like, that's another reason why I think putting putting effort into that as opposed to just posting to post is, is a very valuable, can be a very valuable thing. Um, I think setting good expectations is also really important because, you know, oh, I wanna be a writer. It's like, okay, well, that shit doesn't happen overnight. You know, it's going to be, it's going to be a long, um, a, a really big house to build and it could take a really long time, but you have to start somewhere. Um, start by telling short, short stories on your social media feeds, use it as a tool to communicate, to practice, right. To practice and to communicate these stories. And then eventually, um, you know, you're going to build it up bit by bit. Um, from there, you can start looking at the publications who uh, tell the kind of stories that you want to tell, right? Target those, bookmark those, reach out to editors and say, hey, I'm just getting started in this world, um, but like I would really love to work with you someday. You know, start to build relationships um, in those space spaces, um, start to pitch ideas. You know, you're going to get a thousand rejections, but that's part of the process. So like, I think if you set this expectation that like this is going to, this could take a really long time, and I might also have to write stuff I don't really want to write about if, if you want to make a career out of it, um, just to like, you know, get those practice hours in and, and build up that, like that portfolio of clips. Um, it'll be a lot easier if you know it's going to be a longer road versus, um, you know, I want to be a writer and it's not happening in the first, you know, my first story was rejected. It's like, no, that's an unrealistic expectation. That's right. The uh, the rejections are out there. So just get started now seeing so work on starting to get them out of the way. So yeah. Um, and I mean, I mean, truly, like I, I keep pitching books after Mescal came out. I've pitched, I don't know, four or five different books and 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 they've all been rejected by by the people that I've sent them to, you know. So it's like um that journey also doesn't really end just because you, you know, happen to like get a couple good features or um, you know, win an award or something like it's still going to be a struggle because the space is so is um, is overpopulated with people who want to write. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Are there uh, and no no need to tip your hand in any way uh, that is feels un unnecessary. But in terms of where your writing is headed right now, anything in particular you're excited about or working on your comfortable sharing to any degree right yeah. now? I mean, I could definitely like speak broadly about it a little bit, you know, since I left, um, I left Imbibe at the beginning of, of this year and um, partially with the goal of figuring out what it is I do want to focus on. 
um, you know, I spent the last 12 years um, being kind of a generalist, right? Working at the newspaper, working at the magazine, being a freelancer, kind of just writing about beer, wine, cocktails, spirits, the whole thing. Um, and that has been very fruitful, right? It is, it has helped me get here. Um, but I'm at a point now where I, I want to, I want to focus and I want to put all my energy into something that I want to put it into. Um, and I guess for me, you know, the theme that I found in all of the stories and books and, and things that I've written that I feel the most proud of having done is, is this idea of, of crawling into the soul of a thing. So like writing about mezcal is, is, something that I love to do because it is this one very specific thing, right? It's specific to this country and this culture and this people, and it communicates all of those things. And so, um, you know, uh, the Japanese cocktail book is the same thing. Like I wanted to learn about that, right? Because it's singular. Um, what is the sense of place? How do spirits communicate a sense of place? How do bars communicate a sense of place, right? Um, those are all the kinds of things terroir, provenance. Um, those are the things that I'm most interested in, in continuing to write about, um, you know, and, and, and doing so in a way where I have the room to dig really, really deep. Cause I'm tired of doing surface level shit. Amen. Amen. <laughs> I, I, uh, I, I gave up surface level shit a while ago and, uh, well, it's always still a struggle, but I, I feel you yeah. in terms of, uh, the benefit of doing my own thing is I, I check with the boss, me, and uh, I got to underwrite it. I've got to underwrite it, of course, but uh, yeah, that's uh, right, right. that's great. Yeah, there's always that balance as well as uh, finding out how to finance the whole thing, which is a challenge in and of itself. But yeah, just just speaking, uh, you know, broadly about what interests me, I think that's that's definitely where I'm going to be focused on moving forward. That's terrific. Um, that's all. That's all I have, uh, Emma. Uh, for people who want to dig a little bit more into your work, where can they, where should they be looking online to dig in more to your work? Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty active on Twitter and Instagram. It's just my name, Emma Jansen. Um, and then I, I have a, a website that's normally up. It's been down for the last week. I've been trying to get it fixed, but I'm technologically impaired. So it might take a minute. Um, but I do have like a link in those, in those social media bios where it'll lead you to like, uh, links to the three books that are out, um, recent features and, uh, various other, uh, you know, things that are going on. So, uh, yeah, social media is definitely the best, best place right now. Cool. That sounds great. Uh, thanks again for taking some time today. Yeah. Thank you. That was fun. Hey everybody, thanks for listening. The show notes for today's episode are available at decodingcocktails.com slash podcast. If you'd like to keep up with what we're working on, there are two great ways to do so. One, our short weekly newsletter, Cocktail Confidential, which you can sign up for at decodingcocktails.com slash newsletter. Or give us a follow on Instagram at Decoding Cocktails. If you think this podcast is great stuff, we'd love it if you'd subscribe or, of course, share an episode with a friend. The Decoding Cocktails podcast is produced by Chris Bay and myself. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again soon, and happy cocktailing.